Well, I want to start extemporaneously and see where the Lord leads us. We started the conference with a question. Did the Lord promise a political kingdom or a brotherhood society? And we focused on the exchange, the dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. And in that dialogue, we suggested that Nicodemus came with kingdom expectations. So while he introduced and opened the conversation with a compliment, he must have had kingdom aspirations because Jesus cut to the chase and said, you can't see it and you can't enter it unless something changes inside. Brother Howard pointed out to us this morning that Jesus told him that he was speaking of earthly things. This kingdom that he wanted Nicodemus to see and enter was the kingdom he had promised in Mark 9 and 1 when he said, Most assuredly, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God present with power. And I pointed out in that teaching that the seminal power event post-resurrection was Pentecost. And that was the birth of the church. But I'd like to return for a moment and recap just a little bit of this dialogue between Nicodemus and Jesus. Nicodemus is coming because he wants to see the political dynasty of David restored to natural Judea. And Jesus tells him that you should be expecting and looking for something altogether different. And in fact, if the kingdom were in front of you, you would not be able to see it. If it were before you, you would not be able to enter it because something's got to change. And we talked about how the promise of rebirth would have sounded discouraging to someone who had accumulated wisdom throughout their entire life and were, were now no longer young but an old man. We focused on the fact that he said, are you a teacher in Israel and you don't know these things? Let me just gloss over those scriptures one more time if you don't mind. <clears throat> Why should Israel's teacher have known that the kingdom was a spiritual reality? That it was not a political thing, it was a spiritual phenomenon on the face of the earth. Because Jeremiah the Lord had spoken through him saying, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the one I made in the past. Now I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts and they will all know me, says the Lord. And through Joel, the Lord had said, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And through Isaiah, the Lord had said, I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And through Ezekiel, the Lord had said, I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life. And through Zechariah, he had said, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication 
so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. And again through Ezekiel he had said, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. In Isaiah 28, 11, he had said, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Line upon line, here a little, there a little. For precept must be upon precept until with stammering lips and an unknown tongue he will speak to his people saying, this is the rest by which you will cause the weary to rest and this is the refreshing. So all of these scriptures should have been in the mind of a serious Nicodemus seeker. But for whatever reason, they were not. And so Jesus says to him, do not marvel that I say you must be born again. And then he makes this statement, for the wind blows where it listeth. The wind blows where it wants to blow. The wind blows where it listeth. You know not whither it cometh from or whither it goest, but you hear the sound of it. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He has just told somebody about something that's going to happen that's never happened before in the history of mankind. Never in the history of mankind had anybody broken into a language that they did not moderate with their own carnal mind. He had already prophesied three times through the prophets, Behold, I will do a new thing, says the Lord. I will do something new. And the first new thing was when the virgin was with child. But the angel said, That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And so the new thing was not just the birth of Jesus, he was the firstborn of many brethren. He was the first to be born of the inspiration of the Spirit. That was his native birth. For us, it would be our rebirth. But in that rebirth, he would put his spiritual DNA inside of us so that we could look to him, having received the spirit of sonship, we could call him Daddy, Abba, Father. Praise God. So Nicodemus is perplexed. He doesn't know what this is. And Jesus uses the wind and the sound of the wind to help Nicodemus anticipate what's going to happen. This is, a, this is an unusual way to explain it. Let's just back up and imagine that Jesus wanted Nicodemus just to accept him into his heart in some theoretical or intellectual manner. Would he have used this to allay the confusion of the teacher of the law? No. He wouldn't have said, don't marvel that I say you must be born again. For the wind blows where it listeth. You know not whither it cometh from or whither it goest, but you hear its sound, the sound of it. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He would have said, come on, Nicodemus, you've heard new ideas your whole life. I've just got another new idea. But he wasn't there to bring a new idea. He wasn't there to bring 
correct facts about God. It wasn't just an announcement that he was Messiah or a revelation that he was going to die for Nicodemus. He wanted Nicodemus to receive something from God into himself that would make him a son of God. He wanted Nicodemus to be born of the Spirit in the same way Jesus was born of the Spirit. Yes, it would be a measure with Nicodemus. It wouldn't be the fullness of God. But he wanted Nicodemus to know that promise was for him and for his children and for all who are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God would call. And so he says, the wind blows where it listed. Don't, don't be confused, Nicodemus. The wind blows where it listeth. You don't know where it's coming from and you don't know where it's going, but you hear its sound. So he's saying that when someone is born of the Spirit, something happens. The Spirit moves on somebody. And something occurs that they don't know where it's coming from, and they don't know where it's going, but they hear its sound. The operative phrase in this exchange is, but... You hear its sound. That's the takeaway that Jesus is wanting to bring home to Nicodemus. In fact, I don't know if we ever quote that. We hardly ever quote that when we quote this scripture in the church. We talk about the wind blowing where it wants to blow. But we don't say what was his point. That the wind has its own mind, so to speak, but you hear its sound. And the word that he uses there is the Greek word phone. You hear its phone, from which we would get something like telephone, right? Sound. <laughs> you hear its phone. Then he says, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, throughout the next portions of the gospel, we're going to see Jesus allude to the Spirit over and over. He often talks about how the Spirit is working in him. In John, he talks about the Spirit whom the Father is going to send in his name. And then he clarifies, I won't leave you, I'll come to you. But in the early chapters of John, Brother Dan already quoted his conversation with the Samaritan, one of the only times when he tells somebody plainly that he is the Messiah. One of only two times in John, if I have that correct. And he tells this woman that he is Messiah, and then he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who's speaking to you, you would ask him for living water that would become in you a fountain of living water springing up unto eternal life. So we have this image of this hidden gift that God wants to give people, and if they knew about it, they would be praying, they would be asking, they would be seeking. And this hidden gift would become inside of them this spring, this geyser, this artesian joy welling up unto eternal life. I heard somebody say recently, if, if you had a fountain in your belly... Where would that fountain find release? Some arbitrary place on, the, on your back? I imagine we've all had fountains in our bellies from time to time. 
But if we're speaking spiritually, and we're borrowing this metaphor where we've got something inside of us that's welling up unto eternal life, where does that artesian spring find outlet? Out of your mouth. <laughs> hmm. So then we go over to John 7, and we're told that when the Feast of Tabernacles began, his brothers were going up to the feast, and they asked Jesus to go also. And he didn't want to go. I think it was a seventh-day feast. And he didn't want to go because he said it wasn't yet his time. And you see this incredible contrast between people who are living by their own dictates and choices and someone who is constrained to the precise timing and obedience of the Holy Spirit. And he says to them, your time is any time, but my time has not yet come. Well, it was only the difference of seven days before the Lord gave him the release to go. And he didn't do much teaching. He didn't debate with any Pharisees. He went up and made an epic declaration. And we're told in John 7, 37, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus did something. Historians tell us that on this last and greatest day of the feast, the Jews would anticipate all the Old Testament promises of the Spirit's outpouring. They anticipated this last and greatest day of the feast was this anticipation that the God of heaven would one day pour out some rain of His Spirit, some thunderstorm of grace on His people. And so in anticipation of that, one of the priests would go down with a laver of water to the Gihon Spring, I believe it was, and he would come up, and the multitudes would be gathered. And they said that at that day there was such joy that they, there would be rejoicing. The old men would stomp their canes, would tamp their canes, and there was dancing and twirling and praise. You think, we're rowdy. I can't imagine what that was like. <laughs> and this... The priest would take this laver of, of water that came from an artesian spring. For the Hebrews, Mayim, living water, is it Shaftimayim, would be the living water. They made a distinction between still water, dead water, and living water. And in their mikvah practice, which began around the time of Jesus, they only allowed you to be baptized in water that was moving. They didn't want stagnant water they wanted water that was going somewhere. And, and so they, they put a, a great emphasis on water that was under its own pressure, that erupted from the ground, that wasn't carried or coerced by man. So they went and grabbed, got this laver of water from this artesian spring, and they would bring it up to the whole multitude gathered on the Temple Mount, and they would pour it out. And they would pour that water out just splashing and pooling everywhere to symbolize the outpouring of the Spirit. And at the pouring out of the water, there would be this, this sense of promise, this sense that God was going to visit His congregation with renewed power and grace, the grace of the Holy Spirit. And that this was anticipating Joel's promise. Hallelujah. So Jesus waited seven days until the last 
and greatest day of the feast. And this was the event of that greatest day. And somewhere from the crowd, a voice erupted. If any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. John says this, he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Showing us that whatever event occurs prior to glorification cannot be the outpouring of the Spirit. The Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Do you know that scripture well enough to speak it to us in Hebrew? John 7, 37. Give Brother Liotta a mic, please. John 7, 37. If any man thirst. I want us to go back in time and picture what this multitude of thousands upon thousands gathered at the temple would have been anticipating as suddenly from the crowd Yeshua began to shout. Vayehi beyom hechag ha'acharon ha'gadol amad Yeshua ve'ikra le'emor but the Bible tells us he shouted it out. Now he's being kind to our ears. He stood and shouted. Do you sense the urgency in his heart to give us the Holy Spirit? He's already said in the Gospel of Luke, if a son asks a father for a fish, Will he give him a snake? Or for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? Or for bread, will he give him a stone? If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And so there's this urgency. If any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his innermost being would flow rivers of living water. Then, of course, in Mark 16, he says, These signs will follow them that believe. They will speak with new tongues. They will cast out demons. They will tread on scorpions and snakes, I paraphrase. And then, of course, again in Luke 24, 49, he says, Go, he says, Wait in Jerusalem until you receive, until you be clothed with power from on high. And then again in Acts 1, 5, when they asked about the kingdom, he said, after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. That word power is the word dunamis, from which we get our word dynamite. This is not a, I wonder if it happens sort of event. This is not a, I believe, so I assume it happens sort of event. This is a geyser being released inside of you to praise God without a filter, to love him without hindrance, amen, to surrender your whole being, even your most unruly member, to the power that formed the earth and that loves you, amen, and gave his only begotten son for you. Thank you, Jesus. Remember, he told Nicodemus, don't marvel 
that I say you must be born again. For the wind blows where it listeth, and you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going, but you hear its sound. So is it with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now we just need to jump over to Acts 2.4, and it says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together in one mind and one accord, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, one resting on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit of God gave utterance. And there were devout Jews living in Jerusalem, dot, dot, dot. And when this sound occurred, some mocked and some marveled. So what do we have here? We have an event of the Spirit, the pneuma, the same word he uses with Nicodemus, that creates a sound that's like a mighty rushing wind. It does not say a mighty rushing wind began to blow. It says a sound like as of a mighty rushing wind. And then it says they began to speak in tongues. And when this sound occurred, people mocked and marveled. Now what we have is the word phone that he used with Nicodemus. That is the word that he uses to describe this phenomenon of speaking in tongues, when this sound occurred. Now, how would you describe speaking in tongues to someone who wasn't ready to quite hear it? <laughs> You'd say, well, it's kind of like the wind. You don't decide where it comes from, and you don't decide where it's going. I mean, isn't that a perfect description of someone who's yielding to the Spirit and speaking something that they're not moderating with their carnal mind? You don't know where it's coming from and you don't know where it's going, but you hear its sound. So it is with everyone. Beautiful thing is Jesus didn't say, so it is with the first unfortunate on the day of Pentecost to endure this unfashionable experience that Christians today are so grateful we no longer have to worry about. He didn't say that. He said, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, can we all just admit that speaking in tongues is not fashionable? Can we all just get that out of the way? Can we admit that of all the gifts of the Spirit, it's got to be the one that is mm, the least glorious for the flesh? I mean, give me the prophecy, give me the working of miracles, but mm, I'd rather not. It's just so distasteful. And the idea of surrendering to a power and a voice that's not mine and words that I'm not deciding what I'm saying. Oh, just terrible, terrible to the flesh. Oh, but beautiful, glorious, wonderful for those who would rather be led by the Spirit. When Peter stands up, he says, guys, please accept my apology. This is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on a handful of guys on the day of Pentecost, but it'll never happen again, So, except when I bring the Gentiles in, so don't worry. Just tolerate us. This will be over in a minute, and we can all go back to our staid religion where we can be God and pat ourselves on the back. Isn't that what he said? No, he said, this is what is spoken of by the prophet Joel. What's this that he's talking about? His explanation is of the strange phenomenon of speaking in tongues. They're marveling at that phenomenon. And he says this. 
is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And he doesn't say, this is some special gift. He says, this is the outpouring of the Spirit. And then he says, God has poured forth this which you both see and hear. And then he said, and the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, even after cessationists come on the scene, all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other solemn words, within many other words, he solemnly testified, saying unto them, save yourself from this wicked and perverse generation. So where is the language, where is the limiting language in Peter's explanation? Where is the language that would shrink this down to a one-off experience that praise God's in the past? Where is that? He says, it's, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. I will pour forth my spirit on all flesh. Then he says, this promise is not for you. Is that what he said? No, he says, this promise is for you, for your children, for your children's children, and for all whom the Lord our God shall call. This is inclusive, expansive language that says this is great news, guys. What we've been anticipating on the last day of the feast has finally come. And we don't have to rejoice in the ritual. We can rejoice in the reality. God has sent forth His Spirit into our hearts by which we cry, Abba, Father. Jack Deere was a theologian at DTS who was filled with the Holy Spirit and immediately became incompatible with his surroundings. But he once wrote and he said, I quote, if you were to lock a brand new Christian in a room with a Bible and tell him to study that scripture, study what the scripture has to say about healing and miracles, he would never come out of that room a cessationist. If you just took the scripture and you locked a, an unbeliever or a new believer in a room and said, go learn everything the scripture has to say about miracles, the works and gifts of God, the Holy Spirit. When he came out, you would never find a cessationist. Cessationism is the word that means it's all ceased. Cessationism, right? It's this lie that it's all ceased and that now it's all just in the mind. We don't viscerally encounter the Spirit. We intellectually contemplate what He did when He was active. But praise God, He's not active anymore. Hmm. So, what do you think of that statement? Do you think that's true? Well, of course you do. What that tells us is that cessationism is a doctrine that attempts to explain powerlessness in the church. It's not a doctrine derived from here it's a doctrine derived from here we don't see the miracles we don't see the power and so we read our powerlessness into the scripture but it's not there there's no promise that says good news guys the power of God is going to depart from the earth and you're going to be left to think it all through in the flesh 
Now, I know that would be good news to the carnal mind, but that's never promised in the Scripture. What about Galatians 3 and 5, where he says, The God who works miracles among you. This is Paul writing to the Galatians, who began in the spirit, but are now being made perfect in the flesh. And he's going to rebuke them about this shift. And so he predicates his whole argument with them on this statement. He says, the God who works miracles among you and provides you with the Holy Spirit, does he do it? By the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Now, if Paul wrote a letter to the average cessationist church with that kind of reasoning, what sense would it make? So we do have a doctrinal statement that doesn't apply to us if we are cessationists. Because God doesn't work miracles among us. And he does not provide us with any experience of the Holy Spirit. And so, we don't really even get his point, if that were the case. Let's also look at 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 7. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. And thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He's telling the Corinthians that they will not lack any spiritual gift. And he does not say until you eagerly await the canonization of Scripture. He says until you eagerly await the appearance of the Lord. So the gifts of the Spirit, the charismata, the power and immediate anointed utterance of God in the world through his people is supposed to stay active until the coming of the Lord. That's what we're going to discuss tonight. Can we be the body of Christ without the gifts of the Spirit? The answer is unequivocally no. We are not the body of Christ until we are the body of the anointed one. That's what the phrase means. And James is unequivocal. He says, the body without the spirit is dead. Tragically, that describes much of the church today. In Ephesians 4, we've studied Ephesians 4 much this week. But he says, when he ascended on high, he took captive a host of captives. And he gave gifts unto men. And he lists in those gifts prophets and apostles. And, and when and how long are those prophets and apostles going to remain active? He doesn't leave us guessing. You can try to work around the grammar, say this is a uh, not often used phrase and gobbledygook. But what he says is that they're going to be at work until... We all reach the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, a mature man attaining to the full measure that belongs to the fullness of Christ. The church has not reached that. Therefore, these gifts that God gave unto men are nowhere suggested to have ceased. This is preposterous through and through. 
Somebody says, oh, well, you, you haven't read, um, you haven't read about when the perfect comes. Well, sure we have. Does somebody want to put the perfect up on the screen? 1 Corinthians 13, 8, love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away with. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. Amen? So somebody says, well, look at there. Good news for the embarrassed. Uh, tongues will cease. <laughs> Praise God. Okay. But he also says this other troubling thing. He says knowledge will cease. So if he says tongues will cease, I'm going to say, do you know that? <laughs> and when he nods his head, I'm going to say, wrong, because knowledge has ceased. And they say prophecy is going to cease. But Revelations 19.10 says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Has the testimony of Jesus ceased? Has knowledge ceased? This is ridiculous. Of course it hasn't. So what is he talking about when he says the perfect has come? When the perfect has come? What is Paul talking about? What does he say? In the operative word is he says, but then we will see face to face. Does that make you think of anything that John said? Maybe in his third chapter, first epistle, 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet appeared as to what we will be. This is John talking about the perfect that's going to come. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Doesn't that sound like face to face? I got news. The perfect is heaven. That's the perfect. When the return, the return of Christ and the full revelation of his love, his heavenly love, when he is all that is in all. Psalm 17 is where this comes from. And he says, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Awake from what? From the sleep of death. Jesus in Luke 17, 30 says, it will be just like that on the day the Son of Man is revealed. So the full revelation of God, the face-to-face -face revelation of who Jesus is, is when the perfect comes. Luke 20, 36. In fact, they can no longer die because they are like angels. And since they are sons of the resurrection, they are sons of God. This is the perfect that's going to come. Not some static place of inert qualification that a lazy, self-centered church reaches because they can grip a book tightly. That's bizarre. So somebody says, well, isn't it true that speaking in tongues has ceased? No. No, it's not true. It's not true at all. Why did Paul say that a believer would speak in tongues? In his chapter, immediately following 1 Corinthians 13, he gets into 1 Corinthians 14. Imagine that, right? 
And why does he tell us that prophecy needs to come in the church? Somebody get 1 Thessalonians 4.19 if you don't mind. Why, why does he say that prophecy needs to come in the church? Somebody. Edification. He gives us a couple things specifically. He says to strengthen prophecy in the church in chapter 14, verse 4. He says it's for strengthening, encouragement, comfort, and building up. So good news is once the canonization of Scripture occurs, the church doesn't need strengthening, encouraging, comfort, or building up. Does that make sense to you? No. And he says that Paul says, immediately after he's saying that that it will cease, he says, tongues are to edify the individual personally. He edifies himself unto himself and God. So, does that stop when the canonization of Scripture? What about the canonization of Scripture ends personal edification through in that way? I'm not sure. He says in verse 5, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. I need to read that a couple more times. (laughs) I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. Oh, and he also said, do not forbid speaking in tongues. Whoever quotes that? And then in verse 18 of the same chapter, he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Then he says, be eager to prophesy. When does he say all of this? In the chapter after he tells us that when the perfect comes, it's going to cease. Be eager to prophesy. I want every one of you to speak in tongues. It's for personal edification, prophecy. It's for strengthening, encouragement, comfort, and building up the church. Why would Paul want believers spiritually edified through tongues only until the canon was complete? (laughs) Does that make any sense to you? Oh. If it does, please come and I'll pray for you. (laughs) Why would he be thankful to God that he spoke in tongues more than anyone until the scriptural canon was complete? Is this only getting me or is it you too? I mean, this is bizarre. This is just silly. In Harnock's classic study, The Mission and Expansion of Christianity, as well as numerous other works, they say that the charismata, the harismata, or spiritual gifts, and I quote, continued to be manifested long after the New Testament was written and the apostles who completed the scriptural canon were all dead. So somebody's going to tell us that the church was in an infant stage. But when the perfect came, hundred, several hundred years later, that's when the gifts went away. Is that what the Bible teaches? That the church was in its infant stage? Or does it teach us that it was the fullness of times? Hmm? Does it teach us that the church was what's in its compromised stage? But be patient and greater light and truth is on its way. No. It taught that ravenous wolves would come introducing destructive heresies and take the church in the wrong direction. And it said that it was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And it said no other foundation could be laid. And the foundation is repentance. The foundation is the doctrine of baptisms. And so whatever we see 
Repentance from dead works, faith toward God, doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Those are the foundations. And whatever we see of those foundations in the New Testament, that's the enduring foundation. If anybody replaces any one of those things with some new version, they have displaced the only foundation that we can be built upon. The apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. One of the most prominent study Bibles says that 1 Corinthians 13, 12 that talks about the perfect coming, quote, seems to indicate that the coming perfection speaks of the second coming of Christ. I agree with that. Which Acts 3 tells us will only occur uh, once the rest, after the restoration of all things. Namely, the restoration of spiritual gifts is one of the main things. Thayer similarly says that the phrase, that which is perfect, refers to, and I quote, the perfect state of all things to be ushered in by the return of Christ from heaven. Viewing scriptural canon as perfection, apart from the Spirit revealing it, is to sever the letter from the Spirit and thus kill the Word of God. Peter said, know this first of all, that no scripture is of private interpretation and then he tells us that it's got to be interpreted the way it was given. The holy men of old wrote it as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Any religion that would divorce an experience with God from the things which God has given is promoting idolatry. Any religion that would divorce encounter with God from the gifts he's given is promoting idolatry. What is idolatry? We saw this can happen in, even in a godly religion. Moses was told to raise a bronze serpent and the plague would be stopped, right? The, the venom would, would, would be neutralized. But then in the days of Hezekiah, they were told to tear it down because that bronze serpent had become an idol. It is in the interest of man to co-opt God's religion and make it something manipulable by human minds. But if we have to stand and wait on God to be a witness of his word, to attest to his way, then we are all going to remain in a more humble state. But when we sit as the Olympian gods over the word, we overstand it, but we don't understand it. We think we got it all wrapped up because we can sit there and talk about the Greek and invent grammars for how to explain this. And we're just searching the scriptures because in them we think we have eternal life. But they point us to a visceral relationship with God through the Spirit. And he says in Romans, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. And again, as many as are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So, somebody want to read to me in 1 Thessalonians 5.19. Thank you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterance. And I want to ask you, why would anybody despise prophetic utterance? What is the mechanism in the church that would despise prophetic utterance. 
You see, prophetic utterance doesn't claim to be an exposition about God. Prophetic utterance claims to be the voice of God. And we're told, let one prophesy and the rest judge. So we're not, it's not like we're all just at the mercy of the craziest guy who gives a prophecy. But nonetheless, prophetic utterance purports to be the very word of God. Now, is it not in human nature to despise that kind of authority that we can't sit over and analyze and assess and judge from the throne of our own mental supremacy? Is there something in me, is there something in you that is inclined to despise that presentational expression of God's authority in his anointed word? Hmm. They say, well, when the perfect came, we didn't need all this because scripture hadn't been closed. Paul does not say, he, he gives explanation for why we speak in tongues. And it is not because canon hasn't been closed. He gives explanation for why the church needs prophecy. He gives explanation for why the church needs miracle. We're going to get into these explanations. You know what none of his explanations include? Because the canon hasn't been closed. This is a leap. This is, a, this is bizarre. This does not make any sense at all. I'm sorry. Supposedly, the, the Scripture replaces the need for these things in the church, and yet, who canonized the Scripture? Who decided what should be considered a Scripture? The church. So which came first? The church or the Scripture? The New Testament. The church came first. You had to have a mature church to create, to, to agree on what was Scripture that was more mature than that church? that making a pretzel in your brain? <laughs> Good. Mission accomplished. Can we put up 2 Corinthians 3.17? I'm ignorant, but I don't know what you mean by canons. Canons are scripture. You never heard of Nikons or canons? No, okay. <laughs> the body of scripture. The canon of scripture. The body of scripture. The selection of books that were considered. These are the word of God. And it was a godly church that made that assessment. And so somehow we're going to assert that, that the, they were somehow inferior to the assessment. I mean, the inferior to what they compiled. I don't think so. doesn't make any sense. So do we have that up there? What does this say here? Now the Lord is the Spirit. What does that mean, now the Lord is the Spirit? Does that mean He didn't used to be the Spirit? What does that mean? Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There's freedom, jubilee. What, what does that mean? Now the Lord is the Spirit. It means that the governing agency of God on the earth that used to be expressed through the man Christ Jesus is now expressed through the Spirit. Amen? The Lordship of Christ is now exerted through the Spirit. So what does he say in this same book? The first Adam became a living soul. What does he say the second? Who was the second Adam? The second Adam became a life-giving spirit. 
I know the social Trinitarians will be puckering their lips there, but that's okay. That's what it says. The second Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. Now the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. He's borrowing from Jesus, who's borrowing from Isaiah. Remember what Jesus ministered when he stood in the synagogue? What did he say? The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to set at liberty the oppressed, all of this, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. But now he says, now the Lord is the spirit. Okay, let's look at a couple other scriptures. Let's look at Luke 10 and 18. We already addressed this before. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So when did Jesus say that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven? Can we switch back and forth between one, Andrew? Do you mind? Okay. Okay, let's look at, let's look at uh, Matthew 12, 28. Do you mind? But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Your translation will likely say, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the the kingdom of God has come upon you. How many of us want the kingdom of God to come? And what is the simplest definition of the kingdom of God? It's where the king removes another king, takes territory. This is where he says, you have to bind the strong man in order to plunder his house. We addressed this in the first teaching. Amen? If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Every time we pray, your your kingdom come, your will be done, we're saying, God, cast out the reign of the enemy and replace it with the reign of God. But now the Lord is the Spirit. When Jesus was on the earth, he was the one pointing the finger of God. But now what what agency does the Spirit use to do that work. The church. The church. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It's the church. Let's go back to the other scripture. When did Jesus say, I saw, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. When he gave the apostles authority to act in the spirit. And they went out. And they cast out demons and they healed the sick and they proclaimed the gospel and they declared that the kingdom of God was near. And when they came back and told him, basically in summary, we moved in the spirit, he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. This was a vision of the wrong king, the king of terror coming down as the people of God begin to take territory through the Holy Spirit. Amen. Praise you, Jesus. Okay, thank you, Jesus. Let's put up 1 Corinthians 4.20. There's a lot more we can do on this, but let's just look at this for a minute. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. Cessationism removes the power that Jesus defined the kingdom as. He said... If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Cessationism says, let it be in word. Let it be in thought. Let it even be in your mind and heart. 
but don't let it be in power. But he says, the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. Now, can you put up my main text, which is 1 Corinthians 12? And this takes us to our title. Okay, I want you to look at this scripture with me. And especially the underlying sections. Concerning spiritual gifts. When you were pagans, you were led astray by mute idols. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Same Spirit, same Spirit, same God who works all things in all persons. Now let's read it slowly. And let's just see what Paul's point is in this chapter. And I'm going to make a pretty bold claim, but I don't even have to make it if you'll listen. If you'll read it with your mind open. Paul introduces a topic to the Corinthians, and he says, Concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. And then, does he just arbitrarily change the topic, and then in verse 4, arbitrarily jump back onto the topic? Paul had a wandering mind, maybe. Maybe somebody walked by him and said something about Jesus Lord, and he said, nobody can say Jesus Lord. Or do you think that he's tying these things together somehow? Concerning spiritual gifts, I don't want the church to be ignorant or unaware. And why does he not want the church to be ignorant or unaware? You know that when you were pagans... You were led astray by mute idols, however you were led. Do those two sentences go together? What is the clear... Let me just ask you this. If I came to you and said, I need you guys to know about the gifts of the Spirit. Because in the church you used to belong to, you followed a mute God, and I don't want that anymore. Would that make sense to you? Okay, well, that's what he's saying. He's saying concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, you can't become ignorant. Because if you become ignorant of this, you're, you're going to start going back to a kind of worship that resembles the idolatry whereby you worshiped mute gods. And so his burden, let God have a voice in the church. Let God be heard in the church. Concerning spiritual gifts, he says, therefore, verse 3, therefore, that ties us to the previous statement. When you were pagans, you were led by mute idols. Can everybody say mute? mute. Therefore. I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is either a contradiction in Scripture, or you might not have understood what he's actually saying. Jesus said in Luke 6 that many 
are going to say to him on the last day. The day of judgment. Lord, Lord. And he will say to them, depart from me. Now I ask you, those people who are going to be cast from his presence, did they say, Lord, Lord, by the Holy Spirit? No. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I don't want you worshiping a mute God. I want you to be able to legitimately claim that Jesus is your Lord. But that's not possible unless Jesus has a voice. Unless the Lord is the Spirit. And the Spirit still speaks in your life and in the church. And you still receive it. Then you can say, He's still my Lord. And now listen, he said that we cannot say Jesus is except by the So we need to bring together need with solution. We need to say he's Lord in our lives, but we require the Spirit in order to do that. Paul has created a scenario. We want to say Jesus is Lord, but we need the Spirit in order to do that. Now he's going to show us how the Spirit is going to enable us to say that He is Lord. Verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts. He returns to the point. But the same. And there are varieties of ministry, but the same. Now do you think this is arbitrary? You think He's going to say, Spirit, Lord, Spirit, Lord, Spirit, just to have a kick? No, he's just told you, you need to be able to say Jesus is the Lord of your life. But that's not possible without the Spirit. That's why I want you to be aware of the charismata, the power and gifts and activity of God in the church. Do you see it? (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Well, there's a chance for you to say he's Lord. And there are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. That entails that the Spirit needs to be manifested to me before I can obey it. Jesus was the ultimate manifestation of the Spirit. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. But the church is supposed to be Teaspoon manifestations, the mosaic of Christ to the earth. So you've been, you've been given a gift. And by yielding to the grace of God and sharing that gift with the body, you are going to manifest the Spirit of God for somebody. And if we don't move in those gifts, then He remains unmanifested to that extent in that person's life. Somebody says, oh, the manifestation is the incarnation. That's all that it is. Well, I didn't say it wasn't. Paul said, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit. Do you hear the solution coming over and over? This is how we're going to be able to say he's Lord. King of kings and Lord of lords, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another 
the interpretation of tongues, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. Verse 12. Now, hey, you haven't forgotten 2 Corinthians 3, 12, have you? Now the Lord is the Spirit. Okay. Verse 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, talking about your human body, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so also is Christ. <laughs> he says, your human body has many members, but it's one entity. And he doesn't say, so also is the body of Christ. He says, so also is Christ. He's not even making any distinction. This many-membered body that is speaking to you through wisdom and through tongues and through prophecy and through miracles, this many-membered body, if fitly, if fitly framed, if filled with his glory, if according to design, is an encounter with Jesus. Not in an individual, but in the mosaic of his people. Do you see what he's saying, brothers and sisters? When we were in New Zealand in 2014, we were just wrapping up our trip and six adults had been baptized, which would represent the nucleus of that fellowship that was coming forth. It was exciting. And Brother Jared, would you raise your hand, Brother Jared? Brother Jared and Brother Eddie, who's not with us now, but in New Zealand, the three of us sat down and Eddie's garage and they said to me give us something give us a word from God that we can go on before you leave we were going to leave directly and I was not prepared but as soon as they asked me I began to tell them account after account after account of the supernatural dealing of God in our history apart from which this miracle would have been impossible. Somebody has said, and we are grateful for this, somebody has said today, this is a miracle. Somebody said the same thing last night, that this is a miracle. Do you think unity is a miracle? Somebody said, to see an entire congregation pick up and move halfway or most of the way across the nation and start a community, this is a miracle. Oh, we don't deny that at all. We don't deny that at all. My parents were in Phoenix, Arizona in 1973, and they had just received an invitation to start a mission in Manhattan, New York. And my dad had preached a revival. It was pretty discouraging without much fruit. And at the end of his preaching, an aged minister, Brother Johnson Almond, came up wobbling on crutches attached to both arms. And he stood at the base of the platform and laid hands on my dad's head and prophesied to him. You want to know where this came from? There would have been no church. There would have been no voice in the wilderness except a word of prophecy came 
Did he know my parents were praying about whether to start this mission in Manhattan? No, he didn't. Did he know them at all? No, he did not. They were strangers to each other, but not strangers to the God who was speaking through him. He put his hands on my dad, dad's head and he prayed and he said, the doors of Pentecost are closing to you. I'm calling you to the wilderness and the waste places. But as I was with Joseph in Egypt, so shall I be with you. And whatever you put your hand to, I will bless. That is why they went to their hotel room and ringed Brother Gidros and said, we're going to accept the invitation and start that church in Manhattan. This has been built on the gifts of the Spirit every step of the way. While they're in Manhattan, Brother Howard is down in Austin. They're going through a trial in the church in New York. And supernaturally, God leads them to the same passages. And he calls with a word, I'm giving you the call of Philadelphia. And that was the next grace, to take the next step. My dad talks about time after time, words of knowledge, words of revelation. You didn't grow up in our house as a cessationist. I hate to tell you that. <laughs> he had x-ray vision. And I'm not joking. My siblings can testify. He'd call from 1,800 miles away and say, I had a dream last night and describe in detail seeing you crawl through a window and pick up such and such and do such and such. And that's exactly what you had done the night before. Or he'd say, I had a dream last night and I saw buried under a barrel X, Y, and Z. That's not happening, is it? And how could you respond to that? Now the Lord is the Spirit. And concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, we can't become ignorant. When my dad exhausted himself to a point where the brothers advised in 1980 that he go down to Texas to take a sabbatical, he got down here to Texas and immediately the church started gathering, a, a Texas congregation started growing in their living room. The Lord sent down brothers from Colorado and they sat in the living room and had a great time and laughed and fellowship. And then a spirit of prophecy came and one of the brothers spoke and said, Behold, I am raising up a work in this state of Texas that no man will ever stop. We've had everything thrown against us. Even the kitchen sink. Every lie you can imagine. Every betrayal you can think of. The media's come against us. Churches have come against us. Everything went wrong. Things unfolded that seemed like they would tear us apart. But God said, I'm raising up a work in this state that no man will ever stop. And we have stood on that word ever since then. We have people in this room who left the religion of their upbringing, became a Christian, were baptized in Jesus' name, and they get word that they're getting a visitor from out of the country. And before that visitor can arrive, Brother Kevin has a dream. This is back in the 1980s. And, says, and the Lord shows him that the people who are coming have a kidnapping plot. And so those who were going to be kidnapped and rescued from Christianity were able to go to those who had plotted it and said, the Lord showed us in a dream last night what you have planned. 
And the fear of God was able to come and all those plans thwarted. How did you know? What was this? It was God. <laughs> Brother Tzafrir, one of our elders in this community, an Israeli-born Jewish brother, he didn't come to God by a creed or a liturgy. He asked my dad, he said, how do I know that Jesus is real? And my dad said, well, there's one way you can find out. Go to a private place by yourself and call on his name and say, Yeshua, if you're real, reveal yourself to me. And so this Sabra, unbelieving Israeli, laid on his bed and cried out, Yeshua, if you're, if you're real, reveal yourself to me. I got news for you. He had a revelation. His whole body become, became paralyzed. He couldn't move or get up from the bed. He called out to his girlfriend to come in and help. Concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. Jews seek for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom. God has given the church the power to be what she's called to be. We just have to abandon all our confidence in the flesh and move in the spirit of God. When we acquired our first land, Rehoboth Ranch, <clears throat> we had a certain amount of money and it wasn't enough except to buy just what we needed. The man had this beautiful place for sale, Mr. McCluskey. And, and he, they said, we want to buy just this lower acreage. And he said, I'm not selling that lower acreage unless you buy this other piece also, 1,200 acres or so. And so they bought the Collins Place, the high country property. And they bought it on a balloon note. Now, don't go off and do something crazy unless the Lord's told you to do it. There was a multitude of counsel and a lot of prayer and fasting. Amen. But they bought it on a balloon note, meaning that they couldn't pay for it, but they didn't have to make payments until the day it was due. Then they had to pay the whole thing. So they bought the property that God had told them was their property, along with a property they couldn't afford. And it was, what, 12 months? And they prayed that God would send somebody to, to buy that property. Absolutely no interest. No interest whatsoever. It's listed with realtors. They're, the whole church is praying. 10 months goes by. 11 months goes by. It's due on the night of the 12th month. And boy, they're starting to fast and pray and seek God. Amen. Is it going to happen, Lord? At midnight, on the very day it was due, they signed the paper because a, dr a guy drove over in a plane and said, I want that, and did it in one day. Amen. The God who works miracles among you and provides you with the Holy Spirit, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Can you hear faith? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. The re what took us to Israel, what took our brothers to Israel the first time, my dad was driving through the hill country of Texas, and in, in a moment he had a vision, and he saw himself in the hill country of Judea. And he got home, and he called up Brother Howard, and he said, Howard, you wouldn't believe what just happened. I was just driving through the hill country, and the Lord gave me this vision and told me that we are going to go to Greece and Israel I don't know when, I don't know how, but just pray with that. Pray on that with me. Of course, they didn't have any money. That's the way the Lord works. Doesn't want you trusting in yourself. So <clears throat> two weeks later, phone rings. My dad answers. Brother Howard says, Blair, you wouldn't believe this. My Aunt Dot. Is that right? My Aunt Dot 
just won a raffle at her church. And they have tickets for four for Greece and Israel in two weeks. The God who works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. We don't need a concept. We need the living Lord. When we moved to this area, we had some persecution scars on our backs. And the Lord gave a word of knowledge that we needed to have a fair the first year. And that we needed to open that visitor center. We didn't know that the Branch Davidian cult debacle was going to erupt just a few miles from here. But if we hadn't moved in the timing of God, we could have been snuffed out just like that. BBC, ABC, CBS News, they were all swarming over this land. And they tried to lump us in at first. But somebody had come and visited and been to the fair. And so at a news conference that we weren't invited to, somebody stood up and said, it's a difference of night and day. And so they published the truth about this community instead of trying to smear us with that debacle. In 2003, 13 dreams came in one year that my dad was going to die. And sure enough, we prayed. And we prayed and we prayed. Some people prayed every night. And he had the, out of the blue, he had an internal organ infection that was unbeknownst to him that landed him with septicemia. Uh, He became septic. He almost died. The doctor said he was the sickest man he ever treated out of a hospital. You say, why didn't he go to the hospital? You don't know my dad. (laughs) We were preparing for the departure there at home. Um, But he, he said he was the sickest man he ever treated out of the hospital. But the Lord gave a word before it even happened and said, I'm going to add to your life like I did Hezekiah's. He gave him 18 additional years. Amen. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Some of, the, some of my generation can tell you the story of when Peter Garrett drowned, was caught in a whirlpool under a system of roots in a river down in Austin. And they pulled his blue, lifeless body up onto the bank and nobody believed that there was any hope. And they prayed and prayed three times. No magical CPR, but prayer three times. And he began to come to life again. You can call it whatever you want. You can give us your scientific explanations. But the God who works miracles among us and provides us with the Holy Spirit, he does it by the hearing of faith. When we started the community in Israel, this is just, I want you to know how this works for us. You know, we, we, had, we had been there. We had visited the fellowship there. We tried to edify a church in that region. And things were kind of stagnating. But by people who did not have any connection to that Israel congregation, five dreams in one week came with an allegory. They all had a dream of a plane that was racing toward the end of the runway and couldn't get lift. Because it had too much baggage and it couldn't get enough speed. Five dreams from people who didn't know anything about the others. Five dreams in one week. And so we sought the Lord. And he told us, you need to get over there and give birth to that Israel congregation. And so we obeyed. And that's why there's a fellowship in Israel. 
I remember, I can't even scratch the surface. If I were to tell all the stories, I can't even scratch the surface. I remember sitting in a meeting once and the presence of God started moving like it has in our midst many times. And I saw this sister run by. And I never done this before or since, but I went running after her and I laid my hand on the back of her neck and I prayed for her. And God healed her of a condition that she had been plagued by for five years. I knew nothing about it. But she was instantly healed in that meeting, never to suffer that affliction again. We've had people who were clinically confirmed by doctors, legally blind, who received their sight. We've prayed for people. I didn't even know. Brother Dan and I, we didn't even know that they had a condition. They just brought a 14-year-old boy up to the front of the congregation. We laid hands on him, and they were rejoicing with shrieks of joy and said he had a tumor right here. And when we prayed for him, it, was, it disappeared. In another country, a 10-year-old girl came to a revival. We never met them. We didn't know anything about them. She came to a revival, carried in her father's arms because of the debilitation she suffered from some kind of chronic condition. And she came back from the revival, dancing and leaping and jumping into her mother's arms. In that same revival, a lady met Brother Josiah the following morning before she went for a scheduled surgery, a macular-related surgery. And they just gently prayed, it's not us. It's the God who works miracles among us and provides us with the Spirit. But they gently prayed. They got to the doctor and he said, I'm not performing the surgery. The problem has inexplicably resolved. When my dad was in his final decline, Sometimes it was hard for me to know when to leave town because I didn't want to be overseas when he left us. I wanted to be there for him. In 2019, I began to feel in my spirit a growing sense that, that uh, I needed to make some trips over to New Zealand, South Africa, and Israel to, to serve the church the congregations in those places. And so I began to pray. And I prayed for two weeks. I told nobody but my wife. I said, I'm, I'm praying and asking God to give me direction about whether I'm supposed to do this. And I, I even told Beck, I said, just pray that if it's God's will, he'll speak it to dad's heart because I didn't want to propose that to him when he was in that condition. So we were over there talking one afternoon and, and, um, I was sitting there by his bed. We talked about dogs and we talked about this and that and we talked about the church. And, and, and just before I left, he, he said to me, he looked at me and he said, one other thing, he said, are you planning to go travel overseas this, this year? And I said, well, I'm praying about it. And he said, I think you should do it. He said, you pray and see if God gives you a confirmation, but I think you should do it. And I said, okay, I'll pray and I'll let you know. I get up and I walk out of his room and I open the door to leave his house and my phone bling and I look at 17 missed messages not uncommon but um, <clears throat> and I hit the, the first one and it's from a brother who doesn't know anything of what I'm discussing, considering and he's got this message and it reads just like this I haven't talked to this brother in weeks, possibly months bling and the first message comes through he says, Brother Ossie, last night I had a dream. 
And in the dream, God was wanting you to go overseas to edify the other communities, but you were worried about leaving your dad. And he told me to tell you that you need to do it. <laughs> so I stand there with the door open. I shut the door, go back into dad's room. Knock, knock, knock. Uh, dad, could I read you a message I just got from the Lord? <laughs> I mean, we read it and it was settled. God doesn't work in this way because of our worthiness. He works in this way because he knows that what man builds without him is wood, hay, and stubble. But when he builds his church, he can save an Israeli from his unbelief and from all the machinations of his fearful mind. And he can start an agrarian community in the wilderness of Manhattan. And he can launch a church in Israel. Praise God. Amen. And he can provide land and a community in Colorado. The story of how we got this land is exactly the same thing. It's just as miraculous. I, I could tell you all night. Do you believe that God still works miracles? Do you trust only in your wisdom? Even if you're part of this church, do we trust only in our own thinking and our own minds? Have we outgrown our need for God? Man can build so much. But he said upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I don't want to take shelter in a church built by man. I want to stand inside that fortress that the hands of God, of God have built. Praise you, Jesus. God wants to give us a fresh anointing. God wants to give us a fresh dependence. God wants us to believe that He still works miracles and provides us with the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. While He's coming to play, I just want to say to you, you can receive the baptism of the Spirit if you want it. He's not far off. You don't have to send somebody to heaven to get Him. Or into the abyss to get him. He's the presence that you feel when your hair lofts up on your arms as you listen to how great thou art. He's the joy you feel moments in this meeting when the word just breaks through all your unbelief and gives you that doubt in man and that faith in God that you can be different. You can receive the Spirit. Jesus told his disciples, You know him, the Spirit. Because he has been with you. Christians who know God. Christians who are saved. Christians who are walking by faith. You know him. You know him. His sheep hear his voice. And they know him. And he leads them. So he who is near to you would come inside of you. If you just give him access. It's not something new. It's not something strange. It's a question of degree. When you raise your hands and you praise his name, you're surrendering yourself to him. Could you surrender a little more? Could you surrender a little more? Could you surrender your fears? Could you surrender your words, your prayers? Could you just relax and glory in his presence? Praise you, Jesus. I trust you, God. 
I trust you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Just surrender. I'm so thankful, God. I love you, Jesus. Fill us with the Spirit. Amen. Fill us with the Spirit. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Fill us with the Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah.